0: Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Marathon Bet Podcast with me Danny Kelly and the former Crystal Palace owner and chairman. Uh, He's got a whole lot of other titles as well and these days he's a best-selling author and journalist as well. He's got a column in the sun. I'm delighted to say I'm joined as always by Simon Jordan. Hi Simon. Hey Dan, lovely to be here as always. Let me remind people of course that uh, we're well into our series now here on Marathon Bet Podcast of Football's Deadly Sins. And today we're going to follow our last, as the moment has come, it's come round. We're going to be doing the sin of lust, as it's described in the good book. Lust can be translated as a desire, a passion, love. So we're going to talk about people's love of football. We will, of course, get round to as well the actual thing of
1: lust, the sexual desire. I always remember Gordon Taylor's wife coming up to me and Gordon Taylor saying, um, darling, this is Simon George." She went, oh, right, uh, player. And he said, no, he's the owner of the football club. She went, oh, God. God, owner? If it, if it was a player, I'd be very interested to talk to him, but not a bloody owner.
0: <laughs> Players were at that end warming up. And suddenly, little holes appeared, all in the flag. And I mean, was wondering, what is that? And then the asses of the Inter Milan fans started to appear <laughs> through the holes, aimed at the poor AC Milan fans. I mean, it was an incredible display of something. I'm not quite <laughs> sure what. Let me ask you another question about then. Have you ever use the phrase I own
1: Crystal Palace as a chat line? (laughs) No, no. You can't rely rely on your personality uh, side. No, that's true. I I do take your point, man. Let me
0: ask you something to start with. If I might be so bold as to talk about the two of us personally, how did you first fall in love with football and Crystal Palace? Are they two separate things or is it one thing?
1: I think they conflate into one thing, really. My love for football came out of my love for Crystal Palace and the fact that my father had played for Crystal Palace in the 50s before he went and got compulsory military conscription and ended up playing for Walter Winterbottom's assistant, George Smith, down at Eastleigh. And I grew up 100 yards away from Sellers Park, so all of my formative years were spent bunking over fences into Selhurst Park, climbing up floodlight pylons, trying to break into various lounges, perhaps staking my claim for future ownership, yeah. but more to do with the <laughs> fact that, you know, that this football stadium that we used to see thousands of fans walk past my front door every day of the week. And then, of course, I was introduced to this fabulous team of the 80s. That came out of Crystal Palace with Terry Venables, Vince Hilaire, Billy Gilbert, Kenny Sampson, Peter Nicholas, Dave Swindler. Some of them that Stevie came mm-hmm. and ended up working for me at a later stage in my life at Palace. But it was that that brought about my love of football. In the 1978 World Cup, watching that was really what really started my desire for football. And then I ended up signing for Chelsea as a 13-year-old. So all of those things brought about my love for football.
0: Yeah, for me, I've got a few years on you. I was lucky enough, my parents came to this country in the 50s and so I was growing up in the mid-60s in the middle of London and my uncles and their friends, their mates, on a Saturday would just decide, These were days when you could bowl up to football grounds, you didn't have to buy tickets in advance and I got taken... Some weeks to Arsenal, some weeks to Tottenham. I can remember being in a monstrous crowd in the mid-60s on my uncle Mikey's shoulders for a game between Liverpool and Fulham at Craven Cottage. I don't suppose the fire authorities would approve, but there were about Mm 45,000 people in Craven Cottage. All stood Mm -hmm. up, of course, in those days for that. Now, I just remember... The feeling of being amongst so many people and the excitement that that brought. I've had similar excitements at gigs, actually, in music, um, my other passion in life. But that feeling of being in part of something unbelievably collective never really left me. I loved it. Why I chose Spurs over Arsenal, because everyone else I know supports Arsenal, I don't know. I think it's something to do with that white shirt. The Admiral kids. Or the, is it just the white shirt early, per se? It's just a plain yeah. white shirt. Yeah. Maybe I'm retro-engineering that. Maybe I've, I've come to love the shirt. I love football. It changes, and we argue about it. Sure. And I think it's, it's got a it new... Invo- it
1: invokes emotion. And as a young boy for me, Danny, I used to sit out my bedroom window... And the players would be training on what is now Sainsbury's car park. And I used to see John Burridge, and I used to see Kenny Sampson, and I used to have football cards. And then Palace once drew Liverpool in 1977 in the FA Cup, and I saw Kevin Keegan and Emlyn Hughes, Ray Clements, and I couldn't believe what I was seeing in front of my own eyes. And football has that ability. And we've spoken about it in other parts of this series where it brings out this emotion, good and bad. It's one of those businesses, one of those sports, one of those things in life that does something that very few things can do. It will always, always invoke an emotion.
0: My parents were obsessed with education. So I used to go to bed very early. They wanted me to be ready for school the next day, you know. So I remember one day my dad came up to my bedroom and very gently woke me up. It was like half 10. I mean, I hadn't seen half 10 at night ever. I was always asleep by then. And uh, he came up because Jimmy Greaves, who was my hero, had been transferred to West Ham. And he didn't want me to find out at school. He thought (laughs) I'd be so upset that he came up and woke me up to tell me this, this story. All kinds of lusts I want to talk about and desires. I think we should start at the top of the Premier League because we have an amazing situation now where one club who is extraordinarily successful, particularly in the Champions League over the years, they've got six of them now, Liverpool, Mm -hmm. but they and their supporters all want something else. They lust after the Premier League title. Meanwhile, Manchester City were record-breaking last year in the way they won it. An extraordinary team and eight goals again this week. Yeah. But they want the Champions League. It's brilliant to watch these two teams, as we like human beings, desiring
1: the thing they haven't got. Oh, sure. And we can take that back even further, can't we? We can talk about Manchester United lusting after Liverpool during the 70s and 80s to the point where, you know, Manchester United disappeared and it took them 26 years to get back to what they would consider to be their rightful place, the Holy Grail, which is winning the elite league, which had now become the Premier League. And now you have Liverpool, Manchester United and Liverpool regard themselves as the biggest rivalry, even though they are not geographically neighbours of that sort. Liverpool covet what Manchester United have achieved. Now, if you look at what we're talking about, particularly what you just said, which is Manchester City, in order for Man City, I suppose, to consider themselves amongst the football elite... They're going to have to lust after something they haven't achieved. You know, I can remember Paul Dickoff running through and scoring that goal against Gillingham in the playoff final that brought them back up the pyramid. And their aspirations then would be very different for their lust for a different kind of success, which obviously now is likely to be the Champions League. You almost get the
0: impression that they had a meeting, well, you know, halfway through the season when they're liable to be. 15 points ahead of everybody else in the Premier League. They could almost divide up the territories. They're right. We'll let you,
1: Liverpool, win the mm. Premier League, provided you get out of our way in the Champions League. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that's going to happen anytime no. soon. No. But it's a nice little theory. It ranks up there with your desires to have the World Cup on an island. Yeah, and uh, also... World that, Cup Island. And the
0: games refereed by drones. Very good stuff. From, from the me. sky. I don't lust after those ideas, though. No, 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 you don't, no. But you, you may come round. Everyone changes. I could, do. I could do. Those are two huge clubs currently... Manchester City have always been, in my mind, a big club, but they haven't been very successful. Mm -hmm. Liverpool have been both things during most of the time that I've been interested in football. One of the great desires, and it's really, I think, been accelerated by social media, as so many other things have, and we tease that we do um, a radio show together with Sean Custis, who's the sports editor of The Sun. He happens to be a Newcastle United fan. All we do is, is kind of, out the corner of our mouth, occasionally say, Newcastle. Not really a big club. Boom. And it's the one yep. thing he cannot stop himself. Yep. There's two clubs I want you to talk to me about, Everton and Newcastle, mm-hmm. whose fans are almost more interested in being described as a big club. Yep. And that's what their desire is, that's
1: what their lust, that's what their love is. Almost rather than just being successful. I think that's even ever more prevalent in Newcastle. Whenever I've Opened my mouth, i had the audacity to comment on Newcastle's fortunes, their ownership, their aspirations, the size of their support base. I'm always greeted with a deluge of abuse, more than in any club, and there's some real clubs out there that have real reason to dislike some of my views. Yeah. But, you know, this desire and ambition and lust for success for this football club, probably, if I'm not being pompous or pious about it, probably harks back to the nature of the value of the club in the community. The main industries down there were very obviously coal and that sort of industry would have been very working man orientated and the club would have been absolutely central to the values of that particular area. You know as well as I do that football, because you've told me, was set about being played at three o'clock because factories kicked out. Yeah, a half people,
0: day, go and, to the pub for a couple people, of points. And, yeah. and the
1: working man would end up at a football stadium at three o'clock in the afternoon based upon that. And I would imagine towns like Newcastle were steeped in that. So then you've got this huge passion for this football club alongside that passion you'll have a desire and a lust for success and ambition and then you've got people like kevin keegan coming back into the fold who was a very passionate character and he would have created an even greater lust or ambition you know of course his famous outburst against alex Ferguson. and you know i would love it if you were to go away to middlesbrough and not get a result and that ambition that people like keegan brought to Newcastle would have created ever more a lust and desire and also probably dan because Newcastle haven't won a lot, there will be a lust for some form of success to be able to meet the expectations of this you know, enormous Geordie Roar that apparently exists at Newcastle, which I've never heard.
0: Some of this is to do as well, Simon, with memory. And I think people often underestimate with human beings how important one's own memories, particularly when you're young, are. And that gets passed down from generation to generation as well. By this I mean... I was at a wedding recently with a Spanish bloke who collared me because he knew I was a football uh, pundit, journalist, and all the rest of it, and he's a football fanatic. And when he found out I supported Tottenham, he was patronising me about them being an ambitious little club there in North London, aren't they doing well, and patting me on the head. And he supports Seville. Now, I know that Tottenham were the first... English club to win a European trophy they were the first English club to win two European trophies they are in my mind a gigantic club Seville Seville have won four European trophies since Spurs last got anywhere near one well the Champions League final notwithstanding and so it's about my memories of it don't match the current thing. I think that's true of most football clubs. And yet, if you say to people, are Leeds a big football club and they haven't been near the Premier League for 15 years, is it now?
1: They got relegated in 2004. So yeah, 15 years. Exactly 15 years. No one questions they're a big club, do they? It's a very good point, Dan, because what you're going to is Leeds United of years gone by. Leeds United with Don Revy. Yeah. Leeds United that dominated the first division as it was during that period of time and not Leeds United that went down through the gears in the 80s and and then came back with Harold Wilkinson in 91, won the league, and then all the stuff that went round with Peter Risdell and the European Cup semi-final, David O'Leary, Leeds United on trial, everything else that went with it. And I think that's a really interesting point because I know Everton and I know Bill Kenwright really well and I know a lot of Everton fans and I don't Get the same feeling about Everton, even though I have a great admirer of them and they're what they call the School of Football or sort of science they call it right, yeah. yeah. As a person that was involved in football, when I close my eyes and I think about clubs of passion and clubs that are lusting after success or have a fan base or our perception of a, I will rank Leeds United. Above Everton. above Everton. And yet, Everton, if
0: you think about the, the long, dry, arid spell of not winning the Premier League we talked about with Liverpool, yep. Everton won the title just a few years before Liverpool last that's won it. Right, Their histories right. are not that very different, except for Liverpool's subsequent two wins yep. in the European Champions League. <laughs> I want to ask you, uh, as a former owner, we talk about the passion of fans, and it's incredible to watch men of 90s crying when their team does something good. It's incredible to watch yep. little kids so enamored with their club they'll hang around to get a sight of some player getting onto a blinking yep. coach wearing that's what sport uh, does, especially wearing football. dre headphones, you yep. know. <laughs> in the dark of night, do you think that owners of football clubs actually exploit fans because they know that they're so in love with these clubs that there's nothing they won't do for them?
1: Honestly, Danny, I don't think so. Now, obviously, we've got a different generation of owners now in English football with a lot more foreign ownership. But my gut feel, first of all, my experienced feel of the chairman, and i spent a lot of time with a lot of them, that central to their thinking. Sometimes a little bit too much is the perception and value of fans and what fans bring to the equation. And that's why there is a pricing policy that often gives fans rewards for being season tickets that makes season tickets so reduced in price and penalises casual ticket holders because you pick and choose your games, that look to fans to see if they want to invest in the thinking behind the kit designs. That could be considered a little bit mercenary because if you don't like something, you're hardly going to buy it. But I think that football club owners understand the value of football fans. I don't get the sense, and I've never gotten the sense that exploitation is at the front of people's minds. I do think that the Premier League, as an entity, has moved into that territory with the pricing policy... I was going to say, Simon. ...of tickets, specifically at clubs like Arsenal, where I think mm, that's a bit strong. You're strong in it there on some of your prices. I hear you, and you're saying to me that
0: chairmen are aware that football fans are not there to just be turned upside down and shaken, but it is the issue of ticket pricing that I think is causing the biggest aggravation. Yeah. Well, actually, it's not, of course. It's, it, nowadays, it's why doesn't the owner spend every penny that, yeah, that, that company's too. ever had? That too. There's no need, Simon, is there, for Premier League clubs to have 70 and £80 pound tickets. If those tickets were half that, it wouldn't cause that much of disruption to their intake. It's a difficult
1: balance, right? Because I am in your camp, our camp, and the camp where you've got to give fans a reasonable price. These are the same fans that, of course, will at times be screaming at me at the top of their voices to do one or to get a manager to do one or to spend more money. I have a real balanced perspective about it because you look at the idea of what tickets cost and you look at the idea of what people want you to do with the football club, and they will tell you, and it's right for them to say so, that this is their football club. And I always, whenever I did fans forums at Palace, I used to say to them, look, I'm going to put my money into the team, as I always do, and of course I'm going to raise your season ticket prices, because it is your club too, so we're all in this together, and they would be an aghast horror at silence across the room, and I'd say, don't worry, I'm not going to put your bloody ticket prices up. But I think it's about value, and I look at some of the pricing policies, and I think, it's a bit strong. I do think that you've got to also balance it, Dan. Let's just say the average club in the Premier League's got 35,000 fans. Sure, right? for the sake of so, argument. So for the sake of argument, they're going to get 700,000 fans per season coming into 19, 20 games. Right? If Ticket prices are bringing in 25, 30 million a year at the average club, 20 to 25 million. That's 25% nearly 25% of the turnover of that business. If you start halving those tickets, you're taking 12.5% of the turnover, not profitability of that business, Mm. turnover. So the argument that guys like me would have, and you would also advocate, is football fans' money doesn't pay for footballers' wages anymore, isn't quite right, because there is a significant contribution still being made by fans, not just broadcasters that pay all the money for players. It's just that, Simon, I recently went to see
0: the the musical Hamilton, and it cost a lot of money. It was like 90 quid for the ticket. Yep. But it was a sensational experience that is seared into my brain yep. and I will take to my grave. I paid the same money to go and watch a nil-nil draw sure, with Brighton yeah. at the new White Hart yeah. Lane or whatever Daniel wants to call it, and I uh, know it's different. Uh, one's a guaranteed, it's a performance; is it a, the other is a sporting contest, and you might not get what you're expecting. Well, I
1: mean, you know, as a former Crystal Palace owner, it, w- it would be difficult for me to want to spend five pounds to go and watch Brighton. So <laughs> I can understand why Brighton are mentioned in this equation. I do think you're right, though, Dan. Where football clubs can do a damn sight more, and I think there is an element of exploitation and a lust for opportunity, is pricing for concessions for children and the kit prices and what goes on there and I try often to make a case for it but I know what kits cost I know that you can buy shirts for nine quid they don't need to be retailing kits for 50 quid 55 quid I do think that's a little bit of a take-on at times
0: I go to the part of the uh, Spurs ground that you know the tickets I have entitled me to sit-in and I look around me, and most people there have got grey hair mm-hmm. because it's an expensive business. Watching Spurs does that to you? Maybe so. Maybe someone are 17 and, uh, and have gone grey watching uh, Spurs trying to give, give away lead after lead after lead. That's possible. But the point I'm making is you do have to make sure that the enthusiasm of young people driven by their TV coverage yep. and all the rest of
1: it, you want to get them into the grounds eventually, don't you? Because these sure. people won't last forever. No, but when you get people like spurs building stadiums like they're doing now and creating an overall, overriding, overarching experience that starts three hours before the game and ends three hours after it and makes football part and parcel of an overriding spectacle, I think you're going to have a chance to be able to keep people engaged and rinse a few more quid out of them. Why is it that some clubs, their fans appear to be more passionate,
0: to use another explanation of the word lust, than others. We talk about Sunderland and Leeds again. And Millwall, although it has you know an edge to it, yep. and yet other clubs, their fans, I'm sure, just as passionate, surely Arsenal fans are just, just as in love with Arsenal as others. It's Rich Towns, another one, who mm. their board even says it. They would have a crisis at this club it's only when the white wine runs out. Or was that Cobbold who used to run the club? Yeah, said that. Is it because there's, there's some clubs that just have just dis- different demographics, and those inner city clubs, particularly like Leeds and and
1: Millwall, just going to attract working class people who are more loud or what is it? I've always thought, Danny and you'll have a definite view on this as well. I've always thought, and this will sound incredibly pompous, but I loved certain aspects of my time at Crystal Palace, and I didn't love other times of it. And I bankrolled the club, and I gave it my very best for 10 years. I thought every calls, and I felt at times that I would have been given the keys to any other town in the club if it had been Sheffield Wednesday or one of those clubs, whereas in London I just felt different dynamic and I think there is if you go to clubs around the country that have I don't know whether it's steeped in history or whether it's the club is such a pivotal part of the community it's so entrenched in people's life and loves and vantage point and it means so much to them it doesn't mean that it means less to football clubs in London it just feels to me that London football clubs there's a lot more to do in London than there are in other places And it also, there's a lot more transient the, 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 you're right the, the, exactly the population is much more
0: I always think of it as like a tumble dryer Yep. people going through London and you walk through Croydon yep. where Crystal Palace are based you will see plenty of Crystal Palace shirts but you'll see other kids in Chelsea that's shirts that's my point
1: yeah. a very good point Dan because I was going to say that I cannot imagine walking through the streets of Liverpool with young boys lusting after Crystal Palace or Barcelona or any other bloody but in London kit. you see in every London, all and the and time and Croydon High Street used to drive me insane <laughs>
0: Someone smarter than me once said, Love is like the moon. If it doesn't grow, it shrinks. Is there any chance, because we're living in a high water moment of football's dominance, of our culture, our news, and our financial affairs, is there a chance that we, me and you, and the other football fans
1: could fall out of love with football? If I answer that perspective from mine, of having been involved in professional sports and seen the flip side or like the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain seeing the pulling the levers and making the noises. Sure. I would say it's very easy to lose your love for football when you see some of the injustices and some of the nonsense and inconsistencies and duplicitous behavior. And as I said before, what's black is white, it's through the looking glass sometimes with what you think should be the very things that are there to support you, which are your own people, the ones that undo it. If I step out of that sort of being the mayor of Cynictown and move back into the territory of that it's lights, camera, and action which sport often is now, and young people growing up and seeing their heroes, and they've been accelerated into an an even more elevated vantage point by the polish that's put on by broadcasters that makes it really show business. I think that football has changed a lot, Dan, and I think you know this, the way that teams set up now is more offensive about scoring more goals. About dribbling the ball out from your own penalty area. Yeah, I just think it's set up for a better spectacle than what we saw in the 70s, 80s. So I don't see from a consumption point of view in terms of what they're watching. I do think that things like The way that VAR is being introduced, I do think in the manner in which players operate sometimes and the way that they're paid, is separating people's love for it and people's expectations are then replaced by demands. People's excitement is then replaced by irritation. And those things, I think, could undermine the game, but I don't see it in the long game being a real Going back to the seventies and eighties when football was not the currency.
0: In all the things that happened to you, and it's all in your book. Yeah, be careful what you be careful what what you you wish wish for. for, It's a real roller coaster. Did you ever fall out of love with the actual game of football? Oh,
1: very much so. I came in, I don't think I was green or wet behind the ears. I just think I was very focused on the fact that I believed there was a way to go. And that way was, we all go together, we all stay together, we all stick together. There is an island over here, an island over there. And we're all on one side of the fence. And when I found out that football doesn't operate that way, it doesn't want that thing to happen. It really just wants people that own football clubs are over here on the right-hand side of the building. And people that manage football clubs are over here on the left-hand side of the building. And never the swains shall meet. Of course, except... If the people on the left-hand side of the building are struggling, need which is the football of players, money. they need <laughs> some money and they need some support and they're not doing very well, then of course then we're all together. So I did find that disillusioning. I did find at certain times the whole football fraternity, the football family. Expression used by those like Gordon Taylor, it's a very dysfunctional family because it's quite a self serving one that looks after itself and tends to be quite ungrateful at times and ungracious and undignified. And I don't mean to be sounding overly cynical, but when you're sat there and you see players that don't care and you see players that have got plenty to say for themselves, yet you know they want to be paid but they don't want to acknowledge their responsibilities and put themselves out and apply themselves. When you see the football family, i.e. the authorities, not being fit for purpose, when you see chief executives that aren't capable of doing their jobs, when you see at times fans that are screaming abuse because they've lost control of their mind because something bad has happened during the course of a game or at the end of a game, it's difficult, and then you're writing checks out for it. You're a big boy, you pay your money, you take your choice, but sometimes you sit back and go, WTF, why am I putting up with this? And what do I love about this? But then you stand in the middle of the Millennium Stadium and win a playoff final and 700 million people around the world are watching it and your fans are going crazy and you lust for more of that. You know me pretty well, Simon. Do. And,
0: and yet this, I'm going to tell you something that you probably don't know about me. There was a spell, I can't remember exactly when it was now, but it was about five or six years where I didn't go to Spurs. And I still watched football and understood it. I still, I think I might have talked about it on the radio at the time as well. Though it wasn't my main means of making a living at the time. I had become so dependent on Spurs getting results that I wanted, on them winning, and so miserable when they lost. I had to give myself a stern talking to. I actually physically stood in front of a mirror and said, is this how you want to be? The week is destroyed because a football team gets caught in the last minute or gets an unlucky penalty. I weaned myself off of it. I gradually brought myself back into it, and I'm yep. still pretty excited when Spurs do well. But I don't let it, even when they're winning at Leicester, and mm. VAR does what it does. I don't let it ruin the rest of my week, or worse than that, the week of the people around yeah, me. It well, isn't I, worth that. See,
1: I get that point entirely, Dan, because I did do a lot of that, and what I did was the sort of I morphed into this Rudyard Kipling impression of treating both imposters equally. When I first had Palace, the first season, you're gripping chairs and you're biting down on gum shields and you're so desperately disappointed that when you lose games i remember once away at watford and we were two nil down two no up and we drew two all and they scored a goal in the last minute and i'm sat there just thinking this is so bloody unfair and your head goes into a, like a goldfish ball and i felt like crying and it was like that after every game and then when we'd win games i'd go to exalted heights and i thought no, and no, i sod this let's keep this balance right because one swallow doesn't make a summer and we you know if we lose a game We'll win the next one. If we win the next one, I'm not going to be full of beans. And if we lose the next one, I'm not going to be depressed because it ain't good for my health. No,
0: it really isn't good. It isn't good good for your psychological
1: approach. Which brings me on
0: to, have you ever seen any football fans who are... Too much in love with football or too much
1: in love with their club. Yeah, I saw that regularly. You know, I saw it, it fascinated me. It's not a specific or explicit story, no, no. Dan, but the very first day that I drove into Palace when I bought it and it was a fans day and there was about 10,000 fans there, and I walked on the pitch and it was like, this sounds very pompous, it was like the Messiah had descended into the stadium because 2,000 fans stood around me and, and listened to every single word. But I remember one particular guy that always stuck in my mind and it was a very sad story for me because he was somebody who was dying of cancer and he was so unwell and I'd gone up to Barnsley away and he couldn't really get about and he'd got himself to the game because Palace were playing Barnsley. He lived in Barnsley at that time and he was a huge Palace fan and I went and met him and it was like, you know, he was so pleased to have met me and it really struck me about the kind of meaning that it has to fans like this and he wrote me a letter because I went back to the boardroom and I said to Phil Alexander, the chief executive of Palace, right, Get a private jet, get that guy down to Sellers Park next weekend, get him in the dressing room, get him to meet the players, and we'll do all this because this is what it means to him. And he couldn't come because he was that unwell. And his wife wife wrote me a letter saying, you know, I thank you for this. And when you walked into that boardroom, I didn't know who you were. And my husband, who was dying, was so horrified with me. He said, don't you know who that is? He said, that's God. That's God. And it stuck with me, not because someone called me God, because this is what that football club meant to him, and that's what I meant. And when he died, and when I lost Palace three years later, I remember writing the book, and I remember writing that chapter or that sequence about that man and breaking down in tears because I thought, I've let him down, I've lost Crystal Palace, I ran out of money, and I couldn't run it anymore, and this guy thought of me that way. So it's not a specific funny story, but it meant a lot to me.
0: Well, no, that's fantastic, and it it gives us a chance to lighten shades, I'll tell you. Obviously, everyone remembers, and it is good crack, The guy who had Andy Cole's face tattooed onto his entire thigh and about two days later while the scabs were still mending um, he got transferred to manchester united there was using all the papers but i'll give you two examples of my own life where i just think wow i thought i was in, interested in football when i was editor of the new musical express the music paper the crossword was done by my, my man called trevor hungerford i hope trevor is still with us and he was obsessed with chelsea football club and he went to every single game home away european and what he considered first-team friendly. If any of the first team were there, he went to the game. And he was racking up these games, hundreds and hundreds. He seemed to completely ignore his family and his home life for Chelsea Football Club. Eventually, he got to 999 consecutive Chelsea games and deliberately missed the 1,000th to prove a point to his wife. (laughs) I'm not obsessed with this club. I can stop any time I like. So he didn't do the 1,000th. Another time, I went with a very famous rock photographer. I'm going to not name him because of various things, but we went to New York to do the rap band Public Enemy. Yep. To, he was going to take the pictures. took three days to track them down, and he hadn't missed a Manchester City home game for years and years and years. And he suddenly he said to the record companies, well, we can't find this band. I have to go back to England. Well, no, we'll put you up in, in in a nice hotel in New York. no. I have to get back to England in order to see this football match. So we start looking at the schedules for him to get back. But the most direct flight from... New York to Manchester was with United Airlines who were then a thing in the United States. But he wouldn't fly United. (laughs) So he had to fly to London, get another flight up to Manchester and then to come back because again, United was the only airline doing it at the time. Back to London. And I just think that he'd gone mad. It It was just far too much.
1: Well, it's like Rangers and Celtic, isn't it? In their boardrooms, both of them have got snooker tables and they've got the Baye's colour at Celtic is green, green and the Baye's colour at Rangers is blue. So, you know, you've got these extremes in people's minds and what it means to them. And it is, I don't find it perplexing. I sometimes find it a bit amusing.
0: I'll do one more before we get on to actual lust and uh, the, the role of sex in football. As I have promised myself, we must do. Obviously, you've got places where you've got equally madly passionate fans who share a stadium. When I was working for Channel 4 many years ago, I had the uh, privilege and the, the honour and free tickets to go and see the Milan Derby. At the San Siro, it was designated a home game for AC Milan. So three quarters of the ground, a big horseshoe, red and black. And then the far end behind one of the goals was the Inter Milan fans. And what they did to try and express their passion their lust and to establish some kind of territorial rights over the stadium which is neither one nor the other as the teams ran out and I had a very high vantage point from the top of the stadium they let down the biggest flag I've ever seen at football it was blue and black stripes obviously and it went from I mean San Siro is a huge stadium so right from the top of it right down to pitch level I saw this blue and black flag which covered up all the Inter Milan fans I thought wow that is amazing then as the players started to warm up, the AC Milan players were at that end warming up and suddenly little holes appeared all in the flag little tiny holes thought, what that I was long way over. what is that and then the asses of the Inter Milan fans started <laughs> to appear through the holes aimed at the poor AC Milan fans I mean it was an incredible display of something I'm not quite sure <laughs> what. What about actual lust Simon? I mean, you know, we've seen football George Best set some kind of template for footballers using their fame yeah. and, and, David, his, and his David own personal and beauty up, yeah. to go around being a man a about sort town. Of man, yeah, yes. yeah,
1: absolutely. I fulfilled that role as a chairman as well.
0: Well, I'll find out about that. <laughs> I mean, I worked in the music business for many years and male musicians were absolutely honest about this they joined bands because they got a big nose and the only way they were going to get lots and lots of female <laughs> attention was being very good on a Fender Stratocaster that was Pete Townsend's eye wasn't he, he said yeah, I'm, not, it I'm not getting any, any, yeah. any action with, uh, with this nose unless I can play the guitar in your experience to what extent is sex a driver a motivator
1: for footballers I think because they're young men it will always be part of it I think it's part of the territory they're in a very testosterone driven environments I think the ideas of what their appeal is I think even more so so now I think George Best started that and took football and the sex appeal of footballers from one perspective to a completely different one. Oh, because uh, they were like
0: know, middle-aged men before yeah, hey, weren't he's they? he's the fifth
1: Beatle, wasn't he? Yes. And then you get into the 70s and you have Kevin Keegan with his perm and Brute and splash it all over. And then you land with where we can probably relate to him most now is David Beckham and his superstar appeal because sport and football is such a huge thing now across all the genders and all the sexes and creeds that it will form part of it. I look at it from the other side of what it actually represents, and I remember a late, rather disgraced publicist that represented me at one point telling me about footballers and girls that were in bars phoning him up and asking him which one of these footballers that they slept with Would be worth more money if they sold a story. Wow! And that's kind of unpalatable and unedifying, but it probably tells you a little bit about the world of football and what it brings. And of course, Danny, we've all been privy to these horrible stories. I was living at the Grosvenor House Hotel when these dreadful stories came out about a horrible expression called roasting, but Mm -hmm. basically orgies at hotels where young girls were being treated like dreadful commodities. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I think ultimately it's part and parcel, unfortunately, of young people's behaviour at times, but amplified when you've got enormous wealth. It
0: was Club 1830, but being done in very posh venues, wasn't it? Absolutely right. Sure. Let me ask you another question about then. Have you... Ever use the phrase, no, I own Crystal no. Palace, as a chat line? <laughs> no, no. Okay. Well, you can't, uh, rely,
1: you can't rely on your personality, I, I, No, that's true. I, I do take your point there. But ultimately, I had a few tools. I mean, I lived in Spain, and boats and Ferraris and big houses did help as well. But no, no. I mean, ultimately, when... You know, I remember... <laughs> it's not about sex appeal. But I always remember <laughs> Gordon Taylor's wife coming up to me, and Gordon Taylor saying... Um, is Gordon Taylor from the PFA. Mm-hmm. Darling, this is Simon George. She went, oh, right. And I was probably at 32, 33. She goes, uh, you're a player? And he said, no, he's the owner of a football club. She goes, oh, God, owner? If it, if it was a player, I'd be very interested to talk to him, but not a bloody owner.
0: <laughs> so it's working against you there, in Simon. In that instance, yeah. We have an elephant in the room here as well, and it isn't the sort of sexual appeal footballers get by association because they are professional players. The real lust, of course, in football. And we've been through this many different ways in this series, but I I think it would be daft of us not to mention it. Yeah, and that is the love of money, the lust for money. The fans want money to buy players. The players just want to earn as much money as they can. The agents, the agents don't want to do any work and still want the money. I mean, that can't go on forever, but let's say at the moment it appears to be an entirely elastic economy. The Mm. more demands get made, the more more money it it produces. What's been the consequences of that? you think for the game
1: itself? I think the consequences are evident, I think a lack of characters, I think a lack of backbone, I think a lack of application at times, I think a sense of entitlement and expectation that pervades football and it isn't just players and managers and owners, it's fans too and I think that all of those things are corrosive and corrupting and a little bit polluting of the sport. And that's why you look at other sports that are on that journey now. I think cricket's on that journey a little bit. I think rugby might come on that journey. Mm -hmm. And you'll see the authenticity and integrity and depth of substance of the way that the protagonist, the main protagonist, the players perform in those sports will start to become slightly diluted the richer the sport gets. It's not a case of the haves and the have-nots because I think that ultimately, even down the pyramid inside football, there is still an element of expectation and entitlement because the sport itself has such riches apparently at its disposal. But I just think what it does is it separates what sport should represent. You know, I've never met a successful pauper. I think they go hand in hand. If you're successful, you'll become imbued with the riches that you deserve. But sometimes in specifically football, people get far too much far too soon they think they've arrived at their destination before the journey's even begun and when you've got young players being given inordinate amounts of money it takes away an element of having to achieve something it takes an element away of being accountable of evolving of moving on to the next level of excelling and wanting to better yourself because money takes away the edge it takes that edge in every walk of life but it seems to be even more amplified in sport because we have an expectation of our athletes to operate at a certain level and when I see young it's used to drive me insane. I remember Ian Wright, who gets on my nerves at the best of times, but Ian Wright coming down and training some of the players at Palace and doing forward work with the young players. And I said to him, Ian, please, don't come down to the training ground in a Ferrari. I don't want it around the kids. No, no, quite. Of course, down he comes with a Ferrari, and all the kids can think about is what car he's got. I know it's part and parcel of being a young man, but by the same token, the centre of being a footballer is... How bloody good can I be? Not l- how much can I get paid.
0: Barcelona's players aren't allowed to bring supercars to their training ground. And right and uh, proper as well they're, sometimes. They're told to turn up in ordinary saloon cars. What you do in your own time is a separate yeah, issue. absolutely. We've talked a, a whole range of things here, and I've really enjoyed this one about lust. I wondered what we were going to talk about. We seem to have found enough to talk about. I think we should end on on a positive note. We talked about the pair of us as very young people, me in my case being taken to football grounds in the 60s that were just Full of people as people recovered from the Second World War and, yep. uh, and as Britain, its economy was booming, and you get the Beatles and you get the, the Labour government and the white heat of technological revolution, all that stuff. I was lucky to be brought into the football of that time. Then you've got the, your story about the great Crystal Palace side Shop. with that wonderful sash, sash from Malcolm the, Allison. Yeah, and everybody, you know, with, with eyes to see, could see they were a great football team at that time. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So what I'd like to finish with now, if I may, is to talk about both of us, you first, what it is you love about the game now. It's our job these days, often, to poke it with sticks because there's so much wrong with it. But what is it, even now, that you love about the
1: game? I think that it remains, to a certain extent, one of the things I took away from my time as an owner was the innate influence that football has. As tragic as this story was, when I saw Bradley Lowry that young boy Mm. that Jermaine Defoe spent a lot of time with. And I saw the influence of Jermaine Defoe in that young boy's life. And as tragic as it was that he passed away, I thought to myself, That's what football does. I want more of that. I want more of that authenticity. When I watch football and I see coming out of the screen, Leeds United versus Derby in the playoff semi-final, and you can feel your own television reverberating with the passion from a ground that's 220 miles away and you can't possibly be influencing the cathode ray tube that I'm watching in my front room. That's what I love about football. When I see what it does to people's lives. When I used to watch Palace fans, away from home and the togetherness that I used to feel. We we went there, we won games, we came away, we were proud of ourselves, proud of the football club and that collective spirit it can't help but take away some of the negative things that I think because that's what I think football does. That's what I think. One of my favourite pastimes, Danny, and people used to watch me strangely was sitting across the Palace chairman walking across a park and watching young boys playing football and you see all the enthusiasm, all the energy, all the vitality, all the aspiration and it reminds me of being a young boy. And you hope for that when you see that amongst your young academy players that I did coming into the first team and the fans being excited. So I just think it's the exhilaration and what it means to people and how it changes people's lives sometimes and how you get the privilege of taking people out of sometimes grey lives, dropping into this fervent environment full of emotion. And you can't bottle it. It's alchemy. You can't bottle what people do when your team scored a goal. I think those are the things that I love about football.
0: I don't think I can follow that, but I'll try. And for me, as you know, again, I can't walk across... Victoria Park in London on a Sunday morning, and I often go for a walk in the winter. If there are people kicking a football about, and whether it's fat blokes recovering from the night before or kids with their parents shouting at them, of course I'll stop for 20 minutes and watch the game because I love the game that happens between the 22 people, men, women, whatever they are, on that grass rectangle. I've come, and I've got to be careful because I don't want to bite the hand that feeds. I've come to hate the business of football. I think it understandable. Yeah, I've come to hate the business of football. I still love the game. But what I love best of all about it in England, in Britain, is the pyramid, by which I mean you can go to see games in the ninth and 10th level played out in parks or people are paying fiver to stand under a tin shed and the people are getting as much... Excitement out yeah. uh, of watching Meaning, that yeah. as when Manchester City play Liverpool. We know those games yeah. will decide who's going to be champions oh, absolutely. of England. I get it. And that club can rise up the pyramid. And yeah. um, We've seen Romania FC, as they're called, have yeah. gone from a Sunday morning kickabout team to the first round of the FA Cup this AFC, year. AFC Wimbledon. And it can be done. Yeah. And I love that feeling that millions of people are watching these games played by thousands of men and women too, but boys who are doing it for the love of it, then they're semi-professional, and right at the top, yeah, Raheem Sterling owns a fortune, but he improves as a player every year, and we're all in this fantastic bubble together, based around this stupidly simple game, and there's the issue, people who write films, want to write novels, make television series that they hope to make a fortune from, they are thinking about complicated interrelationships and the way people work with each other and something as simple as kicking a football between two posts causes all of this brotherhood all of this sisterhood and all this humanity to flow the way it does around football in this country i will never lose the passion for it because because that is too wonderful Coming up, Simon and I be consigning two more football personalities to the sin bin, but first, it's time for our charity bet. All we're required to do is to name the winner of three... Football matches from the Premier League, the Championship, or whatever, and we will win the money. It's turning out to be a bit more difficult than we thought. Dan Taos from Marathon Bet is here with us. Hi, Dan. Hi, Dan,
2: you okay? We were very close last week. Very close. Everton letting you down. That was the banker. Everton to beat Sheffield United. I can't remember which one of you two chose My it. pick. Well, uh,
1: well yeah. <laughs> Dan gets
0: them right all the time. <laughs> yes, uh, as Simon likes to tell you, I'm on a real great run here. No money for us this week, and we are really once again relying on the, ch- on the uh, charity, if you excuse the expression, of Marathon Bet come the end of the season. Otherwise, these poor charities are going to go out of business. We've picked three
1: more matches this weekend. Um, Simon, Which where shall we start? Despite my endless assault upon Manchester United, I'm going to have my pick this week. I think somewhere along the line, they're going to do something meaningful this season, despite the fact they have won a couple of games. And I think that they're going to
2: beat... Arsenal at Old Trafford yeah interesting Monday night fixture this week that uh, is Man- not the form result is it no it's not uh, looking back from my stats and I hope I'm right here I don't think Arsenal have beaten Man United in the Premier League at Old Trafford since September 2006 so the record is going with Man United in that instance and they are 13-10 to 10 to beat Arsenal at home on Monday night
0: ok well I've gone down to the championship for my first bet, and this is an odd one because I think Bielsa is the best manager working in the championship by a country mile and I think Leeds will go up this year but they are such a strange team. I mean, again, as we saw during the last weekend, where they bust out other people's coupons by conceding in the very, very last minute of the 95th minute of their game. And there's something about Charlton, if they're going to survive, having been promoted against all the odds with their slightly nutty owner last season, they're going to have to win their games at home, aren't they? And so I'm going to go for Charlton to beat Leeds. Now, that must be quite a big price for a home team.
2: Yeah, you're right, it is. Uh, Charlton are 57 to 10, so over 5 to 1. And... Probably the reason for that is because Leeds haven't lost away yet this season. No, uh, they
0: haven't. But Leeds have shown over the past several seasons, even under Bielsa, that they just come a spectacular cropper every now and then. Yeah, especially when Derby turn up. The extraordinary energy they put into their game sometimes just doesn't translate itself into a result so this is a wild swing here to try and get a lot of money for charity I'm going for Charlton to beat Leeds United perfect and your third and final selection Simon and I have come together on this one and, uh, so you can't blame Simon if it loses no no we're not. I wouldn't blame him anyway but we Would. <laughs> Aston Villa keep not quite getting themselves across the line and Burnley are a much better team than they were last year but for some reason Simon we've
1: decided Aston Villa are going to win this game I just like Aston Villa and I love that centre forward they've got John Wesley I yeah. think he's a proper player I yeah think very unlucky against well, he will
0: be up against me and not, no, actually Ben me, not me and Tarkovsky. That would be easy for him. Um, ben me and Tarkovsky. One or two people on Twitter, particularly asking Simon, why we're on this podcast both of us are referring to the Aston Villa forward as John
1: Wesley, when in fact he's just called Wesley. It's because I'm a buffoon. No, it's because I'm conflating. I've got John Carew in my mind, and just, I'm just player. thinking of this big because I tried to sign him. I'm yeah, I think of this big centre forward at Aston Villa, and I'm just conflating. So my apologies. It's just Wesley. Yeah, it's
2: not the. Uh... And I like him all the Protestant same. Consistent religious leader from back in the day. And what are the odds on Villa winning that game? Yeah, Villa 11 to 8 to beat Burnley at home. You're right what you said about Burnley. Now they haven't had the Europa League to worry about this season. They've actually started the season pretty well. Uh, they obviously beat Norwich 2 0 at uh, the weekend, and Villa unfortunately went 3 2 down at Arsenal. But Villa need to start picking up some results because, surprisingly, Dean Smith's coming for a bit of stick with some of the Villa faithful and social media over the weekend. But Villa are 11 to 8. So if all your three selections win, Charlton to beat Leeds, Villa to beat Burnley, and Man United to finish it off on Monday night to beat Arsenal, will pay a nice call over £700. Wow, thank you very, very much indeed. That's Dan Taos from Marathon Bet.
0: This is one of the most enjoyable parts of the podcast, Simon, here with Marathon Bet, where we have to consign some personality from football into our sin bin. Now, this week being a sin of lust, it's quite complicated because most people aren't committing lust. It'll have to be people, I guess, who, whether they like it or not, are going to be put into the sin bin, because we've lusted after them. I'll start, and I'm quite happy to say that over the years I've had several man crushes on footballers. Poor old Kevin Davis, when I told him to his face that, he wasn't best pleased. But uh, currently, at Spurs, I've got two. Obviously, when Harry Kane to do what he did and we all knew he was a better player than Emmanuel Adebayo before the manager realised it I definitely have a man crush on him but the odd one and I think I'm going to put him into our sin bin because frankly we're lacking defenders for some reason and he doesn't get a game anymore I really fell in love with Eric Dier perhaps because he is such a limited player but he turned himself into in regular England international. But I also like, of course, his tackle on Sergio Ramos suggests to me that there is a, a side to Eric that he wouldn't want to cross. And so I'm going to put Eric Dyer because of my lust
1: for him, into the sin bin this week. Who are you going to put him? I was going to say that I lusted after players of real quality and character, you know, and players that were real leaders, and those are ones that I really admired. But I think... The player that sprung to mind was Roy Keane, but I think he's already in our sim bin, isn't he? He's got—he's in for about several different Sims, Yeah, I think right. so. Am I able to go back into an antiquated period? Yes, of you time? are. Of course right. you well, are. Well, I'm gonna—I lusted after players like Graham Souness. Wow. Because I just thought, wow, you know, I know he was a bit tricky at times, Graham, but what a midfield player he was! What a sergeant major of a midfield player that demanded of himself and others the highest standards. I met him in later life. I interviewed him for the job at Palace. And, and, I, and
0: he's a charming man. And he's he was a beast at, at, on the football at pitch. At times, he's a charming
1: yeah. man, Graham. No. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, lusted, seen, I, I, seen that I, I lusted after
0: a Graham Soonis. so he goes in our sin bin. And thank you for your views as well. And thank you all for listening to this week's edition of the Marathon Bet podcast. Marathon Bet: Better
1: odds mean bigger winnings. 18 plus. be dot